You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and I'll just kind of let you know how grateful I am for Kevin and Christine. And uh, I met Kevin years ago when he was in college at UOIT, and uh, I sensed then that he had um, a very clear passion and desire for the Lord, and it's no surprise to me to see that God is going to be using him, and I think in significant ways, he and Christine and their family in Ireland, and uh, really, really grateful for them and, and trusting that God is going to continue to bless them in the work of their ministry. Um, I, I think everybody really loves a good mystery. And I think um, the best mysteries are the ones that you should have seen coming, right? But can't quite figure out or you can't quite pull all of the, the pieces together to make sense of how the plot is unfolding, and you get to the end, and you're shocked and surprised. And and I don't care who it is, whether it's authors like Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes, or it's those making movies like M. Night Shyamalan or, you know, others who, who weave together these brilliant stories that often find you confused until you watch the movie or read the book over again. And it's in that kind of rewatching or, or re-reading, rereading in light of the end that you begin to see the clues that you missed the first time. You begin to see those puzzle pieces that, that didn't stick out initially, that didn't seem to have much importance, but now all of a sudden, because you know the end of the story, you can begin to put the pieces in place. And that's, in a sense, what the Apostle Paul is doing here now for the church in Rome, and specifically for Jews in the church who are struggling to make sense of the unfolding mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the drama, I, I should say, of salvation and how God has planned this story to unfold. There is, in Romans 9, some legitimate confusion over the drama of salvation The Jews in particular are wrestling with the gospel that Paul has laid out in chapters 1 through 8, especially where Paul landed in chapter 8, that believers can indeed have this confidence and assurance and security in the gospel, that they can hold fast to the promises of God, that they can know for sure that because they're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the question now that is being asked is, can we really believe this? Paul sees an objection and, and the objection pertains mainly to the nation of Israel. You see, God made promises to them in the Old Testament. And many simply assumed that because of these promises, that, that ethnic Jews were automatically in. They were automatically saved. And now they're looking at what Paul has said about the gospel, and they're looking around them in real time, and they're realizing something. They're realizing that there's not as many Jews being saved as they thought there should be, as they thought God promised there would be. And they're they're, they're really genuinely confused by this, and they're asking this question, does God actually keep his promises? This is the topic of Romans 9. And Paul's answer 
to that question, is it a definitive? Yes, God keeps his promises. Yes, God can be trusted. The issue that Paul takes is with the question itself. You see, their question is actually based on a misunderstanding that all ethnic Israel would be saved by virtue of their nationality or ethnicity. Paul defends this by presenting us with two truths. We've looked at this in the past couple of weeks. The first truth is that true Israel is made up of those not born of physical descent, but of the promise of God. True Israel is actually made up of those who trusted in the promise of God. And he supports this claim by showing that this has always been true. And he pulls us back, as we saw in Romans chapter 9, into the the promise made to Abraham and how God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, that it was all God's work, it was supernatural, that salvation and God's choosing is all of God, and it has nothing ultimately to do with race. The spiritual children are children of God's sovereign choice. And then he he goes to a second illustration and he shows us Jacob and Esau. We read it, right? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Or Jacob I chose and Esau I did not. And he's shown us how again God seems to go against the grain of human expectation. He chooses the younger Before they were ever born, before they'd done anything good or bad, God made his choice while they were in the womb. In fact, God has made his choice before the foundation of the earth. And so again, he's shown us it's it's grace, not race, that saves. It's grace, not works, that saves. God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible, which brought up all the drama that we saw last week in verses 14 through 23. If that's true... If God is ultimately sovereign over salvation, there are questions that this then begs. Is God then unjust? The answer Paul gives is no. How come? Because any saving activity of God is mercy, not justice, and any judging activity of God is justice. It's right. So Paul essentially says, you don't want what you deserve, you don't want what's fair, you don't want what's just, because that would mean every one of us is condemned for our sins. And then Paul has said that God hardens some, and he shows mercy and compassion on others. And then this begs the question, well, then how can we be blamed? If God's will is the one, if God's the one who hardens some, if God's the one who who chooses to to save and to soften some and to, to regenerate and to justify some, how then can we be blamed? And instead of answering the question, he attacks the premise. And as we saw last week, Paul says, who do you think you are to stand in judgment of God? Who are you, O man? God's decision to save whomever He wills. It's His choice. And this is a shocking reality to so many of the Jews who are hearing this message of the gospel. It's a shocking reality to the Gentiles as well. But the shocking reality of all of this is being played out in front of them, and that's this, that a majority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews 
are being saved. And though this is very much a mystery, and it had been, it was prophesied about in the Old Testament. It was pointed to in the Old Testament Scriptures multiple times, in fact. And the Old Testament itself that Paul is going to quote repeatedly here in this section proves that God is faithful to His promises. And I want to read this section for us now. Let's just pick up where we left off. Let's begin in verse 24. Let's begin actually in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In this section, as we close out Romans 9, we see three shocking realities in the drama of salvation. Three shocking realities in the drama of salvation. First, the drama of salvation is an astonishing reversal for the Gentiles. And we see that in verses 24 through 26. There was this shocking inclusion of the Gentiles, and not only a small portion of Gentiles, but a massive ingathering of Gentiles. And all of this is a byproduct of a hardening effect that God has brought about in others. Remember, we're flowing out of the previous verses where he's talked about Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart and how that served to highlight God's glory and power. Remember that? That in hardening Pharaoh's heart, he wouldn't let God's people go, but eventually on that final plague, as Moses declares from God, let my people go, the people of God are released from their bondage to sin. They're released from slavery in Egypt. Why did God harden Pharaoh? That's what Paul dealt with last week in our section. That that the world might know him as redeemer. That's why. So that God's greatness and power could be proclaimed in all the earth. And in the same way, here's what he's now doing. You have to see how he's relating these two things. Why does God harden most of the Jews? That's the issue here. 
And the answer is that the gospel might overflow to the Gentiles. Verse 24, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Most people believe that spiritual position is obtained through religious works, that somehow spiritual privilege, those whom God is pleased with, those whom God accepts, most people believe that that spiritual position is obtained through spiritual or religious works, through external activities that give the appearance of, of a relationship with God, but don't necessarily actually demonstrate a genuine relationship with God. And likewise, most people look at those who are maybe overtly sinful or wicked or who are involved in gross sin and very obvious overt sin, and they would say that clearly those are the people that are not wanted by God. Those are the people who are not accepted by God or called by God, but the gospel of grace comes along and turns this expectation, our sinful human expectation, upside down. And that's what's taking place here. You see, the people you thought were in are out, and the people you thought were out are in. And this is an astonishing reversal of how they were thinking. And by the way, this, was, this is what Jesus demonstrated throughout his entire ministry on earth, wasn't it? He, he, he always fought with the religious, with those who had the external stuff down pat, but whose hearts were far from God. He always argued with them. They always rejected him. Almost wholesale, they rejected him. And, and in fact, they were infuriated by the reality that Jesus went to who? He went to the outcasts. He went to the the sinners. He went to the tax collectors. The the people who were on the margins of society were the ones that Jesus went after because they were the ones most open to receiving it because they realized their desperate need for salvation. And in fact, they accused Jesus. This guy eats with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is like, yeah, that's right I do. And you see, what we find out is that God stops every presumption. God stops every arrogant mouth, and he gives hope to the hopeless. That is the beauty of the gospel. And Paul points out this astonishing reversal and says that God has always planned on calling the Gentiles, those who were cast off, those who were far from God, those who were not seeking God. And Paul's main point is that God has worked in this way to extend his mercy not only to the Jews but also now to Gentiles. And ironically, this is the irony in this passage, the Jews have become like Pharaoh, hardened by God and hardened to God. And ironically, the Gentiles have become like Israel, redeemed by God. And he points out this reality from the book of Hosea. I love this. Remember, we saw this last week. Paul is substantiating his claims from the Word of God. The Word of God is his authority. He's not kind of spitballing here. He's not making this up. This isn't his preference. He wants us to see that this is what God's Word says and has always been true. And so what he does here is he puts together two quotes from the book of Hosea. 
He quotes from Hosea 2, verse 23, and chapter 1, verse 10. Now, a little bit of context is is helpful here. Um, The prophet Hosea prophesied to Israel about 800 years before Christ. At the time, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, was a growing world superpower. They were taking over nation after nation. They were a terrifying threat. They conquered everybody they came across. And the Israelites at this time, had kind of abandoned their trust in God. They'd become a little bit conceited and proud. They were arrogant, and they had begun to rely not upon God and His power, but upon themselves and their own power, their own strategy. They turned their back on God. They gave the appearance like they trusted God, but in reality, they they didn't. And so, God sends this prophet Hosea to say to them, you think you're safe, but you're not. He tells them that the Assyrians are going to overtake them and that this will be God's judgment against the nation of Israel. And what he's saying through this physical reality is that they're experiencing the same spiritual reality. Spiritually, he says to them, you think you are safe, but you're not. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In fact, your hearts hate me. You rely on yourselves, and you don't trust me. And Israel had been unfaithful to God. In fact, part of the point of Hosea and his life is that God is showing them that, that Israel is like an unfaithful wife, and God is the faithful husband. As a result of their unfaithfulness, God is going to send them into exile, an exile from which they will never return. And as a symbol of this judgment, God does something fascinating. He tells the prophet Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. And then he tells this man, Hosea, to name two of his three children the children of his adulterous wife, she, she commits adultery on him, and he t- says, I want you to name two of these children from this adulterous wife, Gomer. I want you to name one of them, not loved, and I want you to name the other one, not my people. I guarantee you those will not be on the top 100 names this year. And neither will Gomer. But you see, this is, this is a graphic picture of the nation of Israel. And what's really fascinating is that these names, they describe the status of Gentiles. Think about that. I mean, God's people, the Israelites, they're the ones who are the chosen people. They're the the ones who are loved by God. They are God's people. Who's not loved? Who's not my people? It's, It's the Gentiles. And these people here are being told they're being put outside, in a sense, the covenant. They become outsiders, nobodies, non-existent so far as the covenant was concerned. They're dead. Let me phrase it like this in New Testament terms. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're without hope and without God in the world. That is to say, they have effectively become Gentiles. And God also promised, by the way, that He would one day restore the status of these Gentiles. That He would 
reverse the situation of rejection that was implicit in the names of, of his children, of, of Hosea's children? That God's word that brings life to the dead is the same word, listen, that brings outsiders inside, that makes the unloved to be objects of God's great love, and that takes those who are cast off, those who are unwanted, and makes them, as he quotes here, sons of the living God. By the way, these are the exact privileges that Paul has spoken of already in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 19. Paul says that this prophecy is now being fulfilled through the gospel. It's an astonishing reversal that displays the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God, even to us whom he has called, both Jews and Gentiles. You see, God has created a new humanity through Jesus Christ, a new humanity that's no longer defined by race or class or culture, but by grace. And his new humanity would be from every tribe and nation. See, God foretold what he has now brought to pass in Christ. And what Paul is saying, remember, is this. God's word has not failed. God is doing exactly what he promised he would do. He has and is accomplishing exactly what he has intended. And what was an astonishing reversal for the Gentiles was actually planned all along. And, and you know, Paul actually recognizes this in in the book of Ephesians, listen to what he says in Ephesians 3, verse 6. He says this, that this mystery, he's talking about a mystery earlier, he says this, that this is a mystery that was, was hidden. It wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, what should this do for us? I mean, what should this produce in our hearts? Here's Christian, here's what this should produce in your heart. When you hear the faithfulness of God, when you see that God is fulfilling his promises, and even though it may take hundreds or even thousands of years to come to fruition, here's what it should do for your heart. It should give you confidence in the Lord. It should give you a strength in the Word of God. You should be able to go to the Word of God and say, this Word of God is true. It is authoritative for my life. God is faithful to the end. He always does what He promises He will do. Even if it's not always what I think it should be, God always does what He says He'll do. And that gives us courage. It gives us assurance. It gives us security because we know that God has promised those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? That is guaranteed, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that God is working all things, listen, not only according to the counsel of his will, but for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. He's doing that for you, and he's doing that for me, and you can have confidence in that this morning. But you see, in this unfolding drama of salvation, we see this, secondly, an astounding reduction of the Jews. Again, this is kind of the, the crux of the issue that they're facing. And so Paul, he turns from Hosea and, and he turns to, to Isaiah now. 
And he moves from the inclusion of Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jews, apart from a remnant. Again, Paul is very conscious, conscious excuse me, of the serious imbalance between the size of the Gentile participation and the size of the Jewish participation in the redeemed community. He, he sees what's going on. Not only that, Paul knows that he has actually been called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And look what he says in verse 27. He quotes from Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This is shocking. It's shocking to the Jews in the first century. And what, what Paul does is he draws on a startling and sobering prophecy that's found in Isaiah 10, verse 22. That, listen, despite the huge number of ethnic Israelites, only a relatively small remnant would be saved. That the Israel within Israel, remember? In the context of Isaiah, again, it's, it's helpful. It's one of, of national apostasy. It's very similar in some ways, though dissimilar in others, to Hosea. National apostasy had taken place in the 8th century B.C., and Isaiah actually refers to Israel in chapter 1 as the sinful nation. That's how God is viewing them at this point in history. And God has forsaken this sinful nation because they have forsaken Yahweh God. God has, again, sent the Assyrians in to invade so that the whole country now lies desolate and there's only a few survivors left why? Because they were guilty. God sent the Assyrians to judge the people of God as he promised he would do because, simply put, they were guilty. You have to remember, as we consider what Paul's arguing here, we are not dealing with innocent people. We're not dealing with morally neutral people. We're dealing only with guilty people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the case he's made all the way through Romans chapter 3. Everyone is guilty. There's none who do good. There's none righteous. No, not one. And the point he makes here through Isaiah is that God would have been just to wipe them all out off the face of the planet. In fact, here's what he says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, God would have been just and right to do to them what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember that story, God rained down fire and brimstone upon a wicked, rebellious people as a just judgment for their sin. And the only one that was spared was Lot and his two daughters. Even Lot's wife, who turned back to look at the scene, was turned into a pillar of salt. Why? Because she wanted the world more than she wanted God. That's Israel. God goes on to promise that a believing remnant will return to the Lord. Why? Only because of mercy and grace. That's it. 
only because of mercy and grace. Grace alone saved them. That's what Paul is highlighting here. Grace alone saved them. Grace alone saved us. If you're in Christ Jesus here this morning, it is only because of God's mercy and God's grace. And Isaiah's cry here is still so relevant to the church today. There have been many Jews who have been hardened and and will face divine judgment and only a small remnant are being saved. By the way, including the Apostle Paul and every Jewish convert since then. But this is so relevant to us. It's a great reminder that no one can presume upon God's grace. And sadly, many Christians, many professing Christians at least, do just that. Whether it's cultural Christianity or maybe you simply grew up in the church and you're convinced you're saved when the reality of your life is demonstrating that you're not. There are many in the church today who believe they're saved, listen, mainly because of their religious affiliation or their religious activity. Those are the two things that, that I, I see most often when I talk to people. Why do you think you're saved? Well, because, uh, you know, I go to church or I'm a part of this denomination. And, or, or, more often than that, they point to their religious activity. I'm involved in all kinds of things. I'm, I'm involved. I serve at the church. I'm involved in a small group. I come on Sundays, maybe, if other things don't infringe upon my, 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 my morning. And this is especially helpful for, for young people who've grown up in the church. Because I think a lot of young people, the issue that we kind of regularly see in the evangelical church is that there's a lot of young people who have the privilege of growing up in the church with Christian parents. And we've talked about this a lot before. But, but think Israel in, in verse, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Look at all the privileges they have. I mean, it's amazing. And it really is. It's incredible. Yet, those privileges can convince somebody that they're saved even if they're not because they see what they have. They see the, the, the people they're around, the things that they're involved in, and that somehow is the evidence that they hold to for their salvation. And yet, one of the things that is so scary when you read through the Gospels and you get to the Sermon on the Mount and you get to Matthew chapter 7, there are people who are going to stand before Jesus Christ on the final day and they are going to declare, Lord, Lord. Double Lord, okay? This is important. This is not insignificant. Why Lord, Lord? Why not just Lord, Lord? It's, it's, it's this personal plea. They really believe they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and Jesus, then, then they're going to appeal to religious activity and involvement and affiliation. Lord, look what I did in your name. I cast out demons. I did many mighty works. I prophesied in your name. And Jesus is going to look at them, and he's going to stare them dead in the eyes, and the words that come out of his mouth are going to shock their system like nothing ever has. He is going to say, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. That's a stunning statement. I, I, I went to Redemption Church. I, I went to Awana. I was in a small group. I went to a Christian school. I was homeschooled. <laughs> no one can presume upon God's grace. You are not saved 
by your religious affiliation or your religious activity. And you want to know what this does for us? It does two things that are really, really important. This ought to produce and cultivate in your heart and in mind humility and expectancy, okay? This, this reality should produce humility in your heart, knowing that it is only the grace of God that saves you. No one is deserving of salvation, not one single human being that has ever lived, and no one has any reason to boast before God. None. In fact, back in in Ephesians, do you you remember what what Paul says in in chapter 2? Listen to what he says about about us. He says, remember that, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19 says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is the church of the living God, and that is all by grace. Not one of us in the church, if you are saved here today has any reason to boast before God. Your boast in the end will be Jesus and only Jesus. Amen? Amen. It strips away all pride of position and all sense of self-importance and all self-righteousness. And by the way, I love this too, it cuts to the root of racism and classism and nationalism. And it says that all, all, regardless of where you're from, what your background is, how much money you have, what gender you are, listen, all are equal at the foot of the cross. There's no distinction. Here's why. There's no distinction, for there are none deserving, and all must be saved by grace alone. I, I want to make this very clear this morning. We, act, we have an inclusive gospel. You know that? We have an incredibly inclusive gospel. Here's why I say that. Because every kind of sinner is welcome at the foot of the cross. And that's the definition of inclusivity. Jesus says, doesn't matter what your sin is, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter when you come, I'll receive any and all who come to me by faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care how bad your sin is, I don't care how long you've been living in your sin, I don't care where that sin took place, when it took place. Listen, you can come to Jesus and find forgiveness and grace and mercy right now. And, and because that's true, listen, because we know that's true, I mean, look around this room. Look, look at the diversity in this room. God saving people. And by the way, I'm not sure if we have any Jewish people here, but this is evidence of what Paul has been communicating. The church is mainly Gentiles, but it's Gentiles from every place on the planet. And so this idea must produce an expectancy in us when it comes to the power of the gospel and the range of God's grace. We need, listen, in other words, to have a global vision of who God is saving. 
We cannot forget that God is saving people right now at this very moment. As you're watching TV and you see stuff happening in other parts of the world, in Afghanistan or North Korea or South Korea or anywhere across the globe, here's what you need to remember. God is at work in that place. God is saving people there. God is moving in power there. The kingdom of God is advancing there. God is creating a new humanity. Paul says this, that he's creating one new man. The dividing wall, that curtain in the temple has been torn. It's come down. There's no distinction. And he's creating a new humanity of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And while in many ways the nations have come to us through globalization and praise God, many, by God's grace and kindness, are still going to the nations. Praise the Lord. Kevin and Christine going to a place that has 1% professing evangelical Christians. Why? Because they believe with all their hearts that the gospel is going to work in power in that place. God is going to rescue those whom he has set apart for salvation in that place. God has the power to bring not only salvation, but full-on revival wherever and whenever he seems fit. The question is this, do you believe it? I was chatting with Pastor Yosef in Romania this week. He's reminded again, the gospel is advancing across Romania. I'm going to be there next month. The gospel is moving in power. And now, now Pastor Yosef, who we had the privilege of partnering with and coaching, I was coaching with him as a, a church planter. Now he is working with a, a church planter in Romania to plant a, another church. And they were already thinking about, where's the next church going to be? See, the gospel is moving in power. I was thinking this past week about Pastor Timothy in Nepal and all the time we spent there and all the work that's going on there. The gospel is advancing across Nepal. The gospel is moving in power and God's people must have a sense of expectancy. And here's why this matters for you because some of you are going to be called by God to go overseas and reach people with the gospel. And you need to go. But most of you, God is going to call to stay right here and be a missionary wherever he's placed you. And you need to see and you need to believe that while God is working across the seas and across the globe, he's working right here in this community. He's working in your home. He's working in your family your friends, and your neighborhood. And God has called you to go out with a sense of expectancy that he wants to use you to reach the nations, to reach the people that he has placed around you for the furthering of his kingdom and the advancement of his glory. And this should fuel our evangelism. But lastly, we need to see this. In this drama of salvation, we see an amazing righteousness from God. In verses 30 through 33, Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? That Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, it's not just about who God is saving. Listen, the the main point here is how God is saving them. 
righteousness and justification must be attained. Did you notice that? We need to be reminded that God just doesn't call people, doesn't just predestine them. He, he also justifies them, and eventually He's going to glorify them, Romans 8. The question is, how must righteousness be attained? Well, you, you could look at the Jews and see what they thought. They thought that righteousness would be attained by perfect obedience to the law. And by the way, that, that's one option. Perfectly obey the law. At the end of the day, love God perfectly. Love your neighbors perfectly. Never violate the commands of Scripture, both in principle but also in motivation. And here's the reality for all of humanity. Fail. Fail. We have not done or could do what God has called us to do. And that is what the law was proving. Paul's already built this case earlier in the book of Romans that they misunderstood the law. They thought they could simply obey the law and they could work towards their own righteousness, that somehow they would have something to offer to God for all their work. But here's the reality that we see again. There is no will or work that can make us right before God. None. But Christ fulfilled this on our behalf. Therefore, the one thing that we can do is not trust in ourselves. That's the one thing you can do. But you see, this is an offense to the natural man. This offends our, our natural sinful disposition. When, when most people, let me give you an illustration of this. When most people are asked what, why they should be allowed into heaven, you want to know what I hear most often? I've, I've been pretty good. That, that is 99% of the time, that's the answer I get. I, I've been pretty good. In other words, why, why wouldn't God let me in? But, but in the drama of salvation, tragically and shockingly, many who think they deserve to be in will be out. Why? Because they tried to earn it. They tried to work at it. They tried to, to attain a righteousness that they accomplished. So here the question is, how did these Gentiles who are populating the church of Jesus Christ, how did they get in when they weren't pursuing righteousness or seeking God? How did they become righteous? Those who were seeking it didn't get it. Did you catch this? This is shocking. But those who weren't seeking it got it. And the answer boils down to one simple word, faith. Faith. And faith is the exact opposite of trusting in yourself. Biblical faith, saving faith, it's faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what He goes to show us. This was always what the Scriptures were telling us. The, the, the first and final phrase that He quotes here are both from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16, and Isaiah 8, 14, and he pulls them together. By the way, Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He uses the same verses. And Paul here, he paints a, a mental picture of a roadway with a great stone which represents Jesus Christ. 
And this stone has been placed right in the middle, and all humanity is streaming toward this great stone. But those who are pursuing righteousness by works, they refuse to see it, and in fact, they stumble over it headlong to destruction. Well, others, a much smaller group, they come and they rest on this rock, this stone. They rest on it in faith, and they find a refuge, they find grace, they find salvation. When I was in high school, I I ran cross-country, and I remember um, I was training in the back of Pine Ridge Forest, if any of you are familiar. I was up deep into the trails running with a friend of mine, and he was a little ways, just a little ways ahead of me, maybe five meters ahead of me, and we were in a really kind of thick area of the, the bushes where there was a lot of twists and turns. And as I was running, I heard, I heard a scream, a yell. And I rounded the corner. I couldn't see what was happening, but I heard my friend yell, and I rounded the corner, and what I saw was that there was a stone right in the middle of the path that he had tripped over. And it was rounding a corner, and he had rolled over the side of a cliff that was about 75 feet high. And he was hanging on to a root that was extending out around the edge, you know, just kind of barely clinging on, yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs, begging me to grab a hold of his arm and pull him up to safety. And he grabbed my arm. I'll never forget it. I, I remember like shocked and in panic. And I, I clung to a, another tree and I, I reached down very carefully and I grabbed his arm. And he grabbed my arm so violently that if I wasn't holding on to something, I was, we were both going over. The word that Paul uses here, that they attained this righteousness, these Gentiles, the word in the original language, in the Greek, it gives this sense of seizing violently, of clinging or laying hold of something with great intensity, as if you were hanging over the edge of a cliff and your very life depends upon it. And you see, everybody has to decide how to relate to this rock in the middle of the path. The rock that God has placed there. And there are really only two possibilities. One is you can stub your toe on Jesus and you can trip and fall to your own destruction. The other is to put your trust in Him, to lay hold of Him and to cling to Him as our only hope. To take Him as the foundation of our lives and to build on Him. To see that He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. He fulfilled the law in all righteousness. He bled and died to pay for your sins, your inability to be perfect and holy. He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father so that if you, listen, seize hold of this rock, you too can be saved. We have an inclusive gospel in that every kind of sinner is welcome to come. But we have an exclusive gospel in that you can only come one way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Seize him violently, and in the end, you will not be put to shame. 
And if you have seized him today and if you have clung to him, there's just one final application I want to end on this morning. And I'll invite the worship team to come up now. That the drama of salvation is intended to produce confidence, humility, expectancy. But listen, above all, it is intended to produce heightened praise and affection for God. The amazing righteousness that you have attained was entirely a gift of His grace. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And the God of all grace has sought us even when we were not seeking Him. We laid hold of Him. Let me say this. We seized Him only because He first seized us. Amen, church? And if that is true of you today, your response ought to be one of reverent and passionate praise and adoration. So as we close this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet right now. And let's stand and let us sing the hymn of heaven to the one who is worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise.